This is an ABC podcast. On RN, online, on the podcasts and wherever you are in the world, welcome to Off Track, the ABC's nature program. And this episode, magpies, but not like we've ever talked about before. I do remember one of my colleagues telling me when I first told him I was going to start research on magpies, he told me that they would drive me crazy (laughs) um, because they're so complex. And it has proven a challenge for us to understand all of what is going on because their vocal communication is so frequent. It can be really overwhelming, particularly in a large group where so many individuals are calling to figure out what's going on. Dr Amanda Ridley has worked all over the world with all sorts of birds, but she's never met one quite like the Western Australian magpie. When she moved to Perth about eight years ago, she was looking to study a species that showed unique intelligence, cooperation among peers, problem-solving ability and, and, well, that lived pretty close by, and she found it in the magpie. But you could say that Amanda's study began, actually, in a way, about 20 or 30 years ago with two ornithologists, Eleanor Russell and Ian Rowley, who lived in Guildford on Noongar country, and they started to become really interested in the local magpies. So they started banding them, putting, you know, little coloured combinations of bracelets on each of the magpies' legs so that individuals could be identified. So when I came here in 2012 to the University of Western Australia, I went to speak to Eleanor and asked her about the magpies because I was fascinated by them. I've always done research into cooperative breeding, but mainly in Southern Africa. And I really wanted a cooperatively breeding species close by that my students and I could work on. And the magpies seemed ideal because they're not afraid of people. They allow people to approach them, which makes observations great. So I went out with Eleanor and she showed me the magpies that she had run back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And they were wonderful. They were wonderfully interactive, easy to observe. And so from those remaining groups of Eleanor and Ian's, I established a larger population. And magpies here live for a long time in the wild. So some of those individuals ringed in the late 90s are still alive today and my students work with them to this day and they're still doing great they're still breeding and maintaining their body mass now there are quite a few different types of magpie in australia the white-backed the black-backed and the western which acts very very differently than those magpies that live in the east of the continent they live in cooperatively breeding groups and they stay in that group year round they defended territory so over on the east coast you do have groups of magpies but they tend to be quite small and clustered during the breeding season whereas over here we have groups of up to and beyond 20 individuals and they stay together throughout the year multiple females in those groups breed and so we can have upwards of six clutches being raised in the same group Is cooperative breeding actually a a common thing in the natural world? It's more common than we thought. Since more research has been done, particularly in southern hemisphere species and tropical species, we are seeing it more often. In Australia, where it's believed passerine evolution began, 
cooperative breeding is quite common. Over 10% of species invest in cooperative breeding. There is a prevailing theory that cooperative breeding is more likely to occur where the habitat is quite variable. That means it can be subject to extremes of temperature like heat waves and drought and at other times flood. So when you're a species that lives in those kinds of conditions, sometimes living in a group allows you to adapt to those conditions better because there's individuals in the group that can help each other. Magpies are not a classical cooperative breeder. The other main study species for me is the Pied Babbler in Southern Africa, and they are what we call a classical cooperative breeder. That's where you have one dominant male and one dominant female in each group, and that breeding pair are the ones that do all the nest building and reproduction, and the other members of the group who are adult group members and able to breed, they help to raise the young of the dominant pair rather than breeding themselves. However, in the magpies, that's not what we see. In the magpies, for example, if we have a group of 10 magpies and five of those are adult females, we might see all five females try and breed. Occasionally, one or two of them won't breed and they will try and help the breeding females from the start. However, some of the females will try to breed, but if their breeding attempt fails, then they will help to raise the young of the other females in the group. But as a cooperative breeder, magpies aren't as cooperative as other species. When you have multiple females breeding, there's a bit of competition between the females in terms of who's going to get help from other group members. And so we do see some individuals that don't help others at all. And we're still trying to get to the bottom of this. Um, in cooperative breeders like the pied babblers, everybody helps. But in magpies, they don't. And that might be something to do with the cost of breeding. So if you help someone else, you get in lower condition and aren't able to breed yourself later on. We're not quite sure at this stage. But it gets even more complicated. You know when you're at work and there's always someone who only works when the boss is around? Well, in birds, providing help raising young can be just like that. They only help when they're being watched. A few studies have found that kind of advertisement of helping behaviour because the idea is that if you provide help, there's some benefit to you of doing so. For example, you might receive less aggression from the dominant individuals. You might be less likely to be evicted, or you might become a future mating partner if you're considered a good helper. And studies in a number of species around the world have found some support for this. There's also evidence of cheating behaviour. For example, if it's a good idea to show that you're a good helper, you're kind of showing off your quality, maybe you can pretend to help sometimes so you look like a better helper than what you are. Yeah, that's been found in a couple of species as well, including the carrion crows in Spain. In terms of what we've seen in the Western Australian magpie, 
We don't really see much evidence of cheating behavior. It's really hard for us to tell because magpies put their nests so high. (laughs) They're about 20 meters up, so it's really difficult for us to observe it and really difficult for us to get a nest camera up there because not only are they high, they're very clever in putting their nests at the end of quite thin branches, so it's not safe for us to climb up there. So it is possible there's cheating at the nest and we're just not picking it up. In terms of signaling that you're helping, kind of showing off your ability to help, we would expect if that's happening that the helpers wouldn't come and help the babies unless the parents were there to see them doing it. So we do see a tendency for helpers to provision young more often when the parents are there, but not often enough for us to be sure that this is a kind of advertisement of helping. One of the behaviours that I've heard described about the Eastern Australian subspecies is that sometimes juveniles get booted out of mum and dad's territory. They sometimes make juvenile gangs that are sort of on the edge territories, perhaps in places that aren't quite as productive. And while they're there with a big gang of other teenagers, they develop a whole heap of social skills and perhaps practice some of their wooing and eventually are able, hopefully, to take a territory of their own when one becomes available. And do you see that happening in your Western magpies at the same time as this more complex group cooperative structure? No, that's one of the big differences between the East and West Coast magpies. We never see these juvenile gangs. And in fact, we've never seen a magpie alone. And our magpies are really well habituated. They recognise us individually and they do come to our whistle to say hi. So we know that if the magpies were out there and they saw us, that they would come to us. And we've never seen a juvenile gang, never seen an individual not in a group. So that kind of cooperative group membership rather than gangs seems to be really important to the Western Australian magpie. So we have a range in group size Well, it varies between years, but our typical range in group size is between 3 and 15 individuals. Some groups down south that we don't actually study are reported to get above 20, but we don't often see them get above 15 here in Metro Perth. And the larger groups, what we've seen in recent years is that cooperation inevitably turns to conflict. This is almost a universal rule. And the larger the group, the more likely there is to be a kind of collapse within the group and the group splits into two smaller groups. So our two largest groups just in the last two years have split into two small groups. Right. What do you think is behind that? So they have a fixed territory and they can't really move very far out of that territory because typically they're surrounded by other magpie groups. Of course, they can move a bit if they're a lot stronger than the surrounding groups, but we don't see much change in territory borders. And so as the group gets bigger within their territory, there are less resources available for all those extra mouths to feed. So we start to see an increase an increase in aggression among group members and that can lead to a split where part of the group moves off to a different area. And just to clarify, does that mean that those groups are genetically related? So is it sort of like a sibling group or is it a mix of different magpies? 
So it's not just retained young from the breeding pair, if that's what you mean. And in fact, there was a genetic study done on the Western Australian magpies a few years ago now that found that within group relatedness isn't as high as what we think because magpies um, over here actually have some of the highest extra group paternity rates in the world. So 80% of the time, the offspring produced are not the offspring of the social father. They're the offspring of a male from a neighbouring group. Uh, and that gives uh, a more vigorous genetic mix, I suppose, doesn't it, rather than it being uh, the same progeny for several years running it from a socially bonded pair. Yes, it definitely does. A, a, a big mix of relatedness within the group. And it really makes sense, given that genetic information, it makes sense why the fathers aren't helping nearly as much as the mothers, because most of the time the offspring are not their own. So when I say fathers, uh, genetically they're often not the father. What I mean by father is the male that is socially paired with the female. He provides a lot less help and it makes sense now because he usually isn't the father. Ouch. So, are the groups sort of matriarchal, as in are the females the bosses? I've struggled with this for many years because in the other species I've worked on, there is a really clear dominant male and female and they do what we call punishment of other group members and eviction and those sorts of behaviours. But in the magpies, we don't really see that. And I've, I've often pondered why. There seems to be more egalitarian sharing of reproduction among the group. For example, in babblers, it's just not tolerated. If there's competition for reproduction, ultimately one of the competitors is evicted. And that doesn't happen in magpies. The other thing that happens in classical cooperative breeders with a hierarchical structure is that they may try and destroy each other's breeding attempts. So when I've put nest cameras up for the pipe babblers, I've seen females destroying each other's eggs. And that's the kind of competition they do for dominance. Now, that might be happening in magpies because we can't get the nest cameras up that high. But we do see multiple females in the group succeeding to breed and fledge young. So we know that they're not egg-eating often if they are doing it at all. Some of the females are clearly dominant over other females in the group. We see quite a few uh, dominance displays and submissive displays. And those dominance displays can take the form of running towards the other one with wings splayed out and doing what we call bill clapping. And the response of the subordinate is often to bow down so that their face is touching the ground and their tails up in the air or they might roll on their back with their legs up in the air. Um, and by doing this, it often diverts the aggression away from them. So within the group, we do have pairs where one is clearly dominant over the other, but we don't have this strict dominant structure that we see in classical cooperative breeders. So if there are multiple sets of offspring in this magpie co-op and the dads aren't really helping much and the mums are primarily looking after their own kids, then who is it that's doing the helping? 
Our juveniles actually help quite a lot. So we call the magpie a juvenile until they're three years old because they don't gain adult plumage until about that age and they don't tend to breed until about that age. But the juveniles are very active with helping not so much the nestlings but the fledglings and that kind of frees up the adults to initiate another brood while the juveniles are looking after the fledglings. So it's certainly not the juveniles that are defecting from helping. It is adults, but within adults, we don't have a clear trend yet. When the juveniles, which are sort of like teenagers, are babysitting the fledglings, the toddlers of the magpie world, what sort of activities are they partaking in? There's a couple of things they do. They feed the babies, as in if they find a big prey item, they will bring it back to the fledgling. But they also do what we call teaching behaviour. And this is a behaviour that we've proved happens in birds. And that behaviour is where they find a particular cache of food. For example, they've unearthed a hole in the ground where a nice juicy invertebrate is. They bring the fledgling over to that hole to observe them foraging. And sometimes they might partly kill the prey and then leave it for the juvenile to kill it completely and eat it. So we believe that the juveniles are involved in helping the fledglings learn what to eat and where to find it. They also do a lot of play fighting with the fledglings. And this is a really hilarious and engaging thing to watch. There is some debate on the function of play fighting, but... We do believe, given it happens so often, there is likely to be a function in it. And in terms of learning vocalizations, we think juveniles have an active role in that as well. So in the magpie, there are a number of different vocalizations that signal an urgent threat or a low threat. And we often see the fledglings copying the juvenile vocalizations. When a fledgling first jumps from the nest, it has a pretty poor voice, so to speak. Its vocalisations aren't very clearly adult vocalisations, but it does develop them fairly rapidly. And I've had a couple of students look into this. We call it the ontogeny of vocal development because vocalisations are so important for communication in magpies. We anticipate that they should develop this ability fairly quickly. And so what my students have done is followed these fledglings from the point at which they fledge throughout their first few months of life. And they collect their vocal recordings and they also collect the vocal recordings from the adults in the group simultaneously. And what they do is an analysis to see at what point the vocalizations of the fledglings are spectrographically identical to that of the adults. And that comes at about 16 weeks post-fledging. Wow, so that's, that's really quick, uh, especially when you consider that they're sort of going to be teenagers up until three years of age. So it's, it's really rapid learning of all the vocalisations. It's incredibly rapid. And what's really interesting is they do something that we see in human children. Very young human children do what we call babble. They just make general sounds and in continuous streams of sounds. And linguists believe that that babble is important to developing 
sounds, words, language. And we see that in fledgling magpies a lot as well. They might sit there on their own when the rest of the group is away foraging and just constantly babble. And as they age, out of that babble comes more and more distinctive sounds. And it, yeah, it happens rapidly, just over a couple of weeks. Can you hear the difference between this 12-week-old Western magpie chick practising its calls? And this, a recording of adults who've mastered their craft. calls and song is so incredibly complex. They're one of the most complex in, in the world, in fact. And that comes with a lot of challenges when you're looking at vocal communication. And I do remember one of my colleagues telling me when I first told him I was going to start research on magpies, he told me that they would drive me crazy <laughs> um, because they're so complex. And it has proven a challenge for us to understand all of what is going on because their vocal communication is so frequent. It can be really overwhelming, particularly in a large group where so many individuals are calling to figure out what's going on. But what all that vocal exchange tells us is that vocal communication is really, really important in this species, that they're providing each other with information all the time. So they have their typical song that is very enigmatic and known across Australia and appears in a lot of Australian films. And they also have what is called the chorus. That's when a whole bunch of group members call together and they, they join this song together. But that song can start in different ways and end in different ways. And we believe that the way the song starts and ends is to communicate information about recruitment and conflict. Listen to these three examples of magpie songs, each starting and ending differently. One. Two. Three. And just the beginnings? One, two, three. And just the ends? One, two, three. So they will call a lot just before a border conflict with a neighbouring group and just afterwards as well. And we believe that has a lot to do with social bonding within the group when the group receives a threat from outside. They do call a lot when predators are around, but this is different from song, and these are the calls that we're really interested in looking into. And this comes down to what are they trying to communicate and what language is. And what are the magpies trying to say? That's what we're going to hear about next week on Off Track.
Dr. Amanda Ridley has several students working on this Magpie group, and the recordings in today's program were from Sarah Walsh, Stephanie Mason, and Mylene Detour. And there's more. Actually, much, much more to the Western Magpies. I think the Magpies just lend themselves well to ask questions about cognition because they seem to be a bird that is very intelligent, very much is aware and responding to what's going on around them. So we thought this would be a great species to test the social intelligence hypothesis on. I'm Ann Jones, and I'll be here on the radio and on the internet, ready for you and the magpies next week. That's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.